you would open your Bible with me to the book of John, John chapter 8, where we'll begin in just a moment, John chapter 8. It's good to see we have a great number here this morning, we have a number of visitors, and we just want you to know, as has already been mentioned, that we're thrilled that you're here with us, excited that you want to worship God, that you want to learn more about Jesus, and we are excited to get to know you, and if there is any way that we can be a benefit to you, we'd love for you to let us know about that. I wanted to let you know about something um, that happened last night. You have a new sister in Christ. Now, what happened was there is a young lady named Cassidy George who's been visiting with us for several weeks. She's a friend of Kyle Cassidy's, and she and Kyle were talking last night. She decided that she was ready to be baptized into Christ, and so we had that, that great, uh, we were at Sonic getting ice cream, me and the kids. We, got to, we had that great feeling of, okay, whatever we had planned, we throw it all down, we come up to the building, and... Uh, we, uh, we got to see her be baptized into Christ. It was just a great thing. In fact, uh, we got the curtains to part this time, because that was a problem last time, and uh, just a great night. So uh, Cassidy's not able to be here this morning. Uh, she has a work commitment, but uh, we'll, when you do see her, when she is back with us, uh, be sure and congratulate her. But most of all, say a, praise, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God, because this is a wonderful thing, that we can be a part of the kingdom and the growth of the kingdom. And that just uh, led me to want to say something that I just realized maybe I don't say as often as I should. And that is, if you ever have a question of a Bible nature, if you're visiting with us and you, you're interested in learning more about something, you would benefit or you would appreciate just some time either one-on-one or with a small group of people to study with you about Jesus or about some Bible topic, I am always available to do that. And uh, I just want you to know, just let me know, and we'll make a time for that to work. Uh, But if there is any need that you have, I say that a lot, if there's any need you have, let us know. I mean it. I enjoy Bible study. It's my passion. And if I have that opportunity to to help somebody to understand more deeply the things of God, uh, then that is a great thing and something I enjoy greatly. Also, if you are carrying some kind of burden... I want to encourage you. It doesn't have to be something you talk to me about. Uh, I would encourage you to go to our elders. I would encourage you to reach out to someone just because we need one another. And we don't want to suffer in silence. And we don't want to have things on our hearts and minds that we don't share with other people. So uh, please do that. And if there is some way we can help you, let us know about that. John chapter 8 and verse 48 is where I want to begin this morning. John 8, 48. It says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
I mentioned last week that we can get to know people through stories. And my goal, beginning last week and through the next several weeks, was to look afresh at the stories of Jesus so that we can learn some of the most important things about him. And I told you last week that I would be preaching a little bit differently than normal in that I'm going to be telling a lot of the stories of the Gospels. I want us to hear these stories through new ears. And sometimes it seems to me that when we study a story, we get so deep into each verb tense and all the different words that are said that we begin to lose the power of the story. And one of the main goals I have as I'm going through this series of lessons is to ask the question, if you and I were to walk with Jesus, what would we most notice? What would stick out to us? So that you and I today, in thinking about and learning about Jesus, would get what we would have gotten had we been there in that day. So, last week we talked about Jesus as a faith magnet, how Jesus creates faith and he draws out faith and he deepens faith. And I want to talk this morning about another special and relevant fact about Jesus, that if you and I were next to him, there would be no question in my mind that we would notice this, and it would be something that would be at the, fort, at the top of our list about what we would see about Jesus. And that is this simple fact. Jesus knows God. We are drawn to people who are spiritual people. In our world, that looks like someone who might spend a lot of time meditating, And you say, well, that's a deeply spiritual person. And people will take long journeys to go visit at the feet of some guru who would have some spiritual information. Maybe it's some kind of religious leader who has spent a lot of time thinking about the things of God, praying, getting close to God. We would say, that's somebody I want to hear what they have to say because they are a spiritual person. And I want to say to you this morning, there has never been a more spiritual human being than Jesus. Jesus has a thriving relationship with God that gives him remarkable insight into God and also insight into man so that when we walk with Jesus, we understand more about God the Father. Let's start with this. The idea is that Jesus himself has a relationship with God. The story we've just read takes place in Jerusalem and there is a group of people around Jesus. Some of them are believers. They've begun to understand about Jesus. They've begun to follow him. But there are others in the crowd that are hostile. So the way this chapter breaks out, almost everything Jesus says, there is a hostile answer to. And you can see that in what we've just studied. Because as Jesus begins to tell them things about himself, particularly the idea that God is his father, well, they just, they just sort of balk at that. I'm not sure I can follow you in that. God as your father seems a little too intimate. And so one of them, I just picture him sitting around with his buddies, maybe chuckling a little bit. He says to Jesus, you know, isn't it true that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Which, by the way, that's not a sincere inquiry. They're just sort of doing a double insult. And Jesus says... Look, you can dishonor me if you want, but I am here to honor my father. And so he says something that makes them, again, kind of sets them off. He says, if you keep my word, you'll never die. You'll never taste death. And they say, well, who do you think you are? You never die. You're not even 30. And you're going to say something that will lead people to eternal life. 
And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you who I am. I am someone who knows God. And if I was like you, if I was a liar like you are, then I might say I don't know God. But I do know God, and I keep his word. And he says, you know what? Your father Abraham that you were so proud of, he was happy to see me come. And they laugh. Oh, oh, have you talked to Abraham too? Samaritan, demon, and you talk to dead people. You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus says, before Abraham lived, I am. Now, not every challenge Jesus has is so explosive. Not everything that Jesus says about his relationship with God causes people to take up stones to stone him like this one does. But this is an essential part of who Jesus is. And if we were going to follow with Jesus, we would notice this. This would be something that was at the top of our list of things we would see about Jesus. So, for example we would notice that Jesus is almost always praying. That's the reason I have a picture of a guy praying here. Obviously, that guy is not Jesus. But Jesus is deep and rich in his prayer life. There is a time when very early in his ministry, the disciples wake up and Jesus is gone. They don't know where he is, so they're looking for him everywhere. I mean, how do you lose Jesus? And one of them must know of a place that he typically goes because they go outside the city of Capernaum and they find him praying. And they say, Jesus, we come back. There's a crowd. They're waiting for you. Everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, no, we've got to move on. For this purpose, I've been sent. You see, when you find Jesus praying, you find him not only by himself, away from everyone, but you also find him with this deep, rich sense of purpose that suddenly he says, we've got more to do. I didn't come just to stay in one city. We've got to keep moving. And so Jesus connects to the will of God by praying because he has a relationship with God. So if you can't find Jesus, the chances are pretty good he's going to be somewhere praying. Praying like he does all night before he chooses his 12 disciples. All night. He doesn't even sleep. Or after John the Baptist dies and he pulls his disciples out and says, let's go out to this desolate place and pray. But the crowds follow him. And so he says, you know what? Let's take care of the crowds. And at the end of the day, he sends the crowds away. He sends his disciples away. And he goes on the mountain to pray. The transfiguration happens when he takes Peter, James, and John and says, let's go pray on the mountain. Gethsemane happens when he takes Peter, James, and John and says, let's go pray in the garden. Jesus is a man of prayer. And the disciples notice it. I know they do because at one point, after he is praying, they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And just picture it. Jesus has been praying, and here are the twelve. They're gathered around. If this were 2019, they'd have their phones out ready to take notes. Jesus, teach us to pray. What do we do? But back then, of course, they were better at remembering things than we are. They didn't have to have the phones to remember things. And so Jesus says, here's how you pray. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Each phrase, each part of that prayer, just full of meaning. Taking a whole area of our relationship with God and distilling it into three or four words. 
And what is most striking about Jesus' prayer, especially in light of the fact that he spends all night in prayer to God sometimes, is that it's so short. And he tells his disciples at one point, he says, guys, don't think that you're going to impress God by praying long prayers. God already knows what you need before you ask him. Just say what really matters. The thing about that is, though, that Jesus knows God. And he knows what God wants in prayer. It goes a little deeper. You remember the story that Zach told us this morning from Luke 18? About a, a widow who needs justice. And the judge is sort of a scummy guy who doesn't want to give her justice. And so what she does is she nags and nags and nags. Until finally he says, you know what? I don't care about this woman and her case, but she is driving me crazy. I'm going to give her justice. And so Jesus says, pray like that. Or he tells a story. This is in Luke 11. He tells a story about, a, well, you're at home and a friend comes from a journey and, and you don't have any food. And so you go next door to your neighbor and you knock on the door and you knock and knock and knock and you hear from inside, go away. I'm in bed. I don't want to get up. You say, but I need something. My friend is here. And so you knock and you bang and you bang on the door until finally he says, fine, take it and get out of here. Jesus says, pray like that. Jesus says, if you pray, you need to know what God is like. Think about this. This is Jesus, the Son of God, talking about God the Father. This is what God is like. God is like a parent who his children keep asking him for things, and he just wants to give and give and give. And he knows better than you do how to give a good gift. If we, as earthly parents, know how to give a decent gift to our children, how much more does God know? So Jesus says, ask him, and it will be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be open. That's what God wants. Jesus has a relationship with God. Jesus knows God. And then he tells others, this is how God wants to be known. This is how you approach God. So when Jesus talks about God, have you noticed? He uses a word for God. He very rarely, I looked at this this week, he very rarely calls God God. He calls God Father. And there is an intimacy in that term that is striking. And it's something that often offended the people who followed Jesus and who heard him talk. But that begins very early on. Mary and Joseph go to the city of Jerusalem for the, the Passover feast. Jesus is 12 years old. The age at which he would become a man. And somehow or another, you know, I think we probably all had this experience. If you have a large family at all, you assume that Jesus is with somebody else who assumes he's with somebody else. And, and after the caravan leaves town, Mary and Joseph look at each other. They realize they haven't seen Jesus. Where is he? They panic and they rush back to Jerusalem. And they look all over Jerusalem in every place. Finally, they decide, well, let's look in the temple. And there Jesus is, sitting in the midst of all the teachers, asking and answering questions. And everyone is amazed because he's 12 years old. And instead of learning, he's teaching the class. And Jesus turns to his mother and says, Did you not know that I must be 
in my father's house. Some versions say about my father's business. One way or another, don't you know me? Don't you know that I'm going to be doing something that relates to my father? And later on, Jesus goes to the same house, the same temple. And now he is a grown man and he looks around that temple and he sees that it is overrun with animals and money changers and money lenders. And he makes a whip of cords and he throws the tables over and he drives the animals out of the temple. And do you remember what he says? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do you hear it? This is my father's house. Jesus has a relationship with God. And if you dishonor God, you dishonor him. And if you dishonor him, you dishonor God. And God responds to that. When Jesus is baptized, just picture yourself. If you're there, you're at the river and you see Jesus go under the water and come up. And then the clouds part. Scripture says, as he was praying, the clouds part. And you see a dove come down on Jesus and you hear a boom. I wonder if it was intelligible. I'm not sure. But the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has a relationship with God. And if we are disciples of Jesus, there is no missing it. This is all of the attraction of Jesus to say, here is someone who truly knows what I seek to know. Second, Jesus knows God's purposes. Not only does Jesus speak to God, Jesus speaks for God. So, sometimes this comes out as Jesus touching on all the hot religious questions of the day. Brother Johnny read the passage about the Sadducees asking Jesus about the resurrection. Boy, they thought they had a good one, didn't they? Man had seven brothers. The woman marries each one of them in turn, but no children. You know what, Jesus? There's no such thing as a resurrection. If there is, tell us whose wife will she be? And Jesus has to touch on that. But the way he does it is he says, you need to understand. You are missing God in this. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. You miss this question because you miss God. And he does this consistently. Just picture being in the crowd and someone says, ooh, I've got one for you, Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce for just any reason? Divorce. And first Jesus says, haven't you read? By the way, if you were following Jesus, you would hear this a lot. Haven't you read? Haven't you read? That's a stock response Jesus has. Because if you want to come into a religious debate and you want to argue and you want to te test Jesus... You're going to have to start with having looked at what God has actually said. Now, we can talk about what that means and where that goes and how all the passages harmonize, but he is saying you can't hope to know God and his will without knowing God and his will in the Bible. Have you not read, he says, and he talks about how Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, how Moses in the beginning talked about he has made both male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. Man will be joined to his wife. And then Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What is God's purpose? What did God want? God wanted people to be joined together. That's why he does the joining in marriage. 
So it's natural to say, if God wants people to be joined, they shouldn't be unjoined. That's the point. I understand there's more to say about that, and Jesus says more about that. But Jesus answers the question by talking about God's purposes. You're in the crowd. And someone says, ooh, Jesus, I've got one. Do we have to pay taxes? And Jesus says, I just love this. Show me a coin. Somebody flicks him a coin. Oh, who's that guy? How do you not know who Caesar is, okay? Caesar is the most famous person on earth. They say Caesar. And I just picture Jesus flicking the coin back and saying, pay Caesar what's Caesar's, pay God what's God's. In other words, yes, God wants you to pay taxes. What does God want? What's God's purpose? God wants you to pay taxes, but God also more wants you to render to God what is due to God. I am amazed at how consistently Jesus is able to sift through all these arguments and get to the bottom line by asking the question, what does God want? One time he sits his disciples down and he just says, let's just go through it, guys. You've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I tell you, don't be angry, don't call your brother names, and fix your arguments now. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't look at a woman to lust for. You've heard that it was said, swear and keep your oaths. I tell you, don't swear. Just say yes and no. Just tell the truth. You've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Love your enemies. What's he doing when he does all of this teaching? He is saying, don't just think about God in the law saying certain things, and then after I've done what God says in the law, I'm free to do whatever I want. He says, you need to think about God's purposes. There is a God behind the law, and that God wants certain things. And the law is a manifestation of what God wants. And so Jesus says, take that and think about the God behind it. I know that God, and I know what he wants. He is not only concerned about murder and adultery. He's also concerned about harsh words and anger that never gets resolved. If you were to follow Jesus, if you were one of his 12, there would be one area where you know no matter what, Jesus is always going to clash with all of the religious leaders in his day. And that is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is that day, Saturday, where the Jews were told, don't work. It was a matter of honoring God's commandment and expectation to stop working and focus on worshiping. So one day, Jesus and his disciples are on a Sabbath walking through a field. And his disciples are hungry. Nobody's working. I mean, they're walking through a field. They're all off of work. But they're hungry, and so they reach their hands out and pluck heads of grain to have a little snack. And the Pharisees say, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, working. Jesus, 
how can your disciples work on the Sabbath? And Jesus consistently, when he is accused or his disciples are accused of working on the Sabbath, denies the charges and claps back at his accusers. And so he does it this time. He talks about, well, you know, your guys are so focused on what's lawful. Lawful. But you know, David ate the showbread. It wasn't lawful. And the priests work on the Sabbath. It's not lawful. He's saying, you need to think about your view of law. Is this what law is? And you need to think about how you are condemning innocent people and justifying people who seem to have broken the law. But there is something else he says that drives home the point. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus knows when God made the Sabbath what he was thinking. God made the Sabbath to be a blessing for man. Because you know as well as I do, sometimes we overwork ourselves. Sometimes we need to say, you know, it's time for a break. To stop and to realize that I am more than just the sum total of the things that I do. To stop and say, I need to pay attention to God and not just to my own thing. We need that. It is intended to be a blessing to us. It is not intended, Jesus says, to keep hungry people from eating. It is not intended to keep hurt people from being healed. It is not intended to keep dying people from being saved. That was never God's intent. And when we start saying that's what the law is, then we're missing the law. Jesus says God's purposes are what I know, and the Sabbath was not meant to be a hardship. On man. He says this in several different ways, by the way. Sometimes they try to trap him by bringing people to him, bringing sick people to him on the Sabbath to see what he'll do. Tricking him. Hey, here's a sick person, Jesus. Hmm, what day is it? Saturday. And so Jesus will heal them, and then he will say things like, Do you think that it's lawful? To do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Or he'll say, hey, if your ox or your donkey falls in a ditch on the Sabbath, is it okay to to pull them out? I mean, isn't that work? Is that lawful? Or don't you untie your ox or your donkey, let them get a drink on the Sabbath? So if you can do that, don't you think it's okay for me to untie this woman who's been bound by Satan? But over and over again, Jesus keeps saying, You need to think about how you are using God's law. That's not what God intended. There is a God behind the law. And that is the way Jesus consistently interprets Scripture. It is the way he consistently interprets situations where he has to decide how he's going to treat people. And if you were with Jesus, you would be drawn to the fact that he always relies on his knowledge of God's purposes to make those decisions. He wants to follow God, but he has a deeper knowledge of God than those around him. But I really think this would be most apparent to us when we talk about Jesus and how he speaks about the will of God, the will of the Father. There is a time, it's one of my favorite stories, there is a time where Jesus sits down at a well, 
as he passes through Samaria, as he's tired. And the disciples go into the city to get some food. They're always seeming to go get food. Have you noticed? And he's sitting there by himself, tired. And a woman approaches from the city. She's there to draw water. It's just him and her. And Jesus engages her. Give me a drink. She says, well, how can you ask for a drink from me? She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. And he draws her out. He, he talks about living water. And then he mentions that she's been married several times before, which sort of escalates the conversation. And she says, oh, oh, you're a prophet. Good, let's change the subject completely. And let's talk about uh, where we worship. So Jesus talks with her about that. And by the end of the conversation, the woman is so captivated by Jesus that she leaves her water jar and goes into the city to tell other people that she thinks she may have found the Messiah. But after that, the disciples come back. They come back from town. They've got the food. And they offer some to Jesus. He says, nope, not hungry. Where Jesus was tired before, now he is energized. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And now, of course, knowing the disciples, they start whispering to each other, who brought him food? Where did he get food? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus knows God's purposes. He knows that the reason he has come is to have conversations like that one, a life-changing conversation with one person, one at a time. And as Jesus has those conversations, as Jesus advances the kingdom, as more and more people begin to understand and believe in him, Jesus is energized by it. He says, it is my food. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I lay down my life that I may take it again. This charge I have received from my father. This is what I'm here to do. And Jesus says, that's God's purpose. And he speaks about that purpose. Please hear me. He speaks about that purpose as a first-hand witness. He tells Nicodemus, we speak what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. That's what Jesus says about himself. And if we were to follow him, we would say, there were some things Jesus would say that would make us scratch our heads, like... Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Really? Can you talk more about that? Or Jesus says things like, in his prayer to God, give me the glory that I had with you before the world was. Can you say some more about that to me? Jesus knows God, and he knows God's purposes. He knows that God wants men to be saved. And because of that, he is energized by seeing that plan of God unfolding and doing that work. And the final thing I want you to see is that Jesus invites people to know God through him because Jesus is part of God's rescue mission. That's why Jesus has come. What is interesting about that is that not everybody is excited about Jesus as God's rescue mission. Some people don't want everyone to be rescued. So Jesus walks by the tax office 
and he sticks his head in and he locks eyes with Matthew. And he says to Matthew, follow me. Matthew knows this is not just, hey, can you come outside for a second? Matthew knows this is a follow me as a life decision kind of question. And yet Matthew decides, I'm going to follow him. He knows he's leaving behind the tax booth and the life he had been living to become a disciple of Jesus. But that's not all that happens because a little later, probably at Jesus' insistence, Matthew throws a party at his house and invites his friends from the tax office, all his tax collector buddies. And they come. And Jesus and presumably some of the other disciples are there in the house with all of these tax collectors. And the Pharisees, they don't like it. I picture them standing outside. Maybe they get Peter or one of the disciples that they would be comfortable talking to. They're probably not talking to Matthew because he's a tax collector after all. And they say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus gets wind of it. Maybe he steps outside the house. And he says, the well have no need of a doctor. It's the sick. And I have come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. But he adds something else. He says, look, guys, you know this passage from Hosea? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do you remember that one? And, of course, they all do. They're Pharisees. He says, go learn what that means. Go learn what that means. See what Jesus is doing? He is saying that if you understood what God meant when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not be resenting God reaching out to tax collectors and sinners. You have missed it. And because of that, you have missed that Jesus is now inviting people to know God. And that's why I'm here. I didn't come to celebrate their sin. I came to save them from it. But you need to understand that God has mercy on these people, even if you don't. But that misunderstanding continues. The more Jesus preaches, the more the undesirables come out. We talked about that last week. He draws faith from all kinds of places. And the Pharisees sit back. And they say at one point, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it must have reached a a crescendo with Jesus because at some point... He stops whatever he was teaching to these people and he he teaches instead with a direct aim at the Pharisees. And he tells three stories. In one story, there's a man with a hundred sheep. One wanders off. And the man goes and searches for that sheep. He leaves the 99 and goes and hunts after that sheep. And when he finally finds it, he brings it home on his shoulders and he rejoices. And Jesus says, that's what it's like in heaven when one sinner repents. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 who have never left. More joy. You see, it's about God and His purposes. And one of God's purposes is to bring His lost sheep home. He tells the story of a a woman with ten coins, and she loses one, and she has to search the house diligently until she finds it. She brings it, and she has a party, and she rejoices. Jesus says, that's what it's like in heaven. But most of all, there is a story of two sons, one of whom takes his father's inheritance and goes and wastes it with wasteful living in a far country 
Finally, there is a famine. He is forced by poverty to crawl home and beg for a new place in his father's house. And the father figure in this story embraces him and welcomes him and kisses him and puts new sandals and new robes and fatted calves before him. Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, let me paint this picture. God is the father. He can't wait for his children to come home. Jesus knows God, and that's what he says God is like. But there's another son who refuses to come in, doesn't want to be a part of the party, and instead says, this isn't right. And Jesus is saying, that's the Pharisees. God's going one way and you're going the other. Because Jesus knows God's purposes. God wants us to pursue a relationship with him through Jesus. That's why Jesus has come. So that not only does he know God, but through him we know God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, he has declared him. Sometimes there are things that get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. We have to humble ourselves and realize that maybe we've been wrong. There are some sins that have to be cleaned out. We have to be born again of water and the Spirit. We have to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this is what Jesus is offering, an opportunity to know God. Maybe not at the same level at which he knows God, but in a way that is connected to God through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Or when Jesus talks about God, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and we will come to him and make our home with him. But when we submit ourselves to God, we can know God too. We can be more like Jesus. That's why he came. I want to give you a few ideas, and the lesson will be yours, about what we can learn from the idea of Jesus and his relationship with the Father. First is that it is possible for us to connect with God. I think sometimes the reason we're so drawn to spiritually minded people is because we see they have something we want. We want to have that assurance and that connection. We want to feel what they feel and know what they know. And Jesus is saying, you can. That's the whole point is that you can connect with God and have that relationship you're seeking with God through me. Now, Jesus is, in that sense, a way God is bridging the gap between him and man so that now we have someone that we understand and relate to, but also that we can connect to God through. We have a mediator in Jesus. So, for you and me, the question becomes, am I willing to accept the offer God is giving of that connection and that relationship? Something that Jesus has told us about and now makes possible through his death. Second, knowing God's will gives me purpose. I love that about Jesus. You can see it. Jesus has a passion to do the will of God. He knows where he's going and he knows why. And if you and I understand what God really wants, then suddenly we know what our lives should be about. We know how we need to interact with other people. 
we know what the goal of our lives is. We have a purpose we didn't have before because we know what God wants for us. And finally, seeking God's will will help me interpret Scripture. You see, that's what Jesus does. And I think sometimes we miss this. Jesus interprets Scripture the way he does because he is asking the question, what does God want? And any scriptural issue will be helped by that perspective. What does God want? When we read Scripture, we need to be asking that question and delving into the motive of God as much as we can understand it behind what has been revealed. And if we can interpret it that way, we will be like Jesus in the sense that we will connect with the will of God on a deeper level. So I offer those things to you as some things that will help us as we think about the relationship Jesus has with God. But I don't want to close this morning without offering an invitation of that opportunity for you to come into fellowship with God through Jesus. The way the Bible talks about that happening is that Jesus takes away our sin through his sacrifice on the cross. And that as we submit in humility and faith to him, as we turn away from those sins and pledge to live a new life, that we can be washed in his blood. We can be buried with him in baptism. So if you believe and you're willing to repent and you're willing to be baptized into Christ then you can have your sins washed away and you can have a relationship with God through him. You can begin to know him the way Jesus knows him, the way other disciples like us are trying to know him. And if you're ready to begin that journey, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.